This podcast is hosted by R Double P. If you are easily spooked, creeped, or offended, this might not be the podcast for you. Reddit is like you know which one I love on Reddit. Which one? Uh, on um, am I the asshole? Oh my god, that's why I joined. Yeah, really. I, was like, <laughs> I kept listening, and um, like uh, YouTubers do, am I the asshole? Ones. Yeah, and I was yeah. Like, I want to see what this is about, and I jumped on, and I was like, holy shit! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> People are so unaware. Yeah, but there was this guy, um, and he and he bought like a house for his new girlfriend and her daughter. Yes. So they could all live in it together, and and you know, great. Beautiful, bought a house, dedicated, commitment. Mm-hmm. Well, they found out that the house had had a murder there and the teenage daughter was, like, epically pissed off <laughs> and, like, demanded that he sell the house. Whoa. And he's like, am I the asshole for buying a murder house? <laughs> no. If he knew, like, who cares? Like, he's just... It's so weird, isn't it? It's bizarre. It's so weird. Oh my god! <laughs> I want the asshole for buying a murder house. That's great. <laughs> Welcome to I think my fridge is haunted. Welcome. <laughs> a very creepy podcast for very creepy people. We are really spaced out this morning. We are super spaced out. I think. Um, well, I personally woke up wondering why I was so spaced out, and later, like hours later, I realised it was because daylight savings had started, and we'd lost an hour. Lost an hour. Not only that, it's the beginning of spooky season officially. It's the first of October. <laughs> our favourite. It's all happening. So we're razzed. We're exhausted. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And do you know what? I had a wild Saturday night last night. Oh. I was I was riding for a while, and then um. I just I played with my cats with a ribbon like till <laughs> you know almost midnight <laughs> riveting it was it was so fun though because like I was just playing with one of my because I have five cats I was just playing of with course. one of them and then um and then like Chandler came in he's like "Ooh, what's happening here I want to be involved and then Tavra came in the Kraken yeah, and she's yeah. like I want to watch this also and then Maple came in and he's like oh stuff's happening <laughs> I'm, I'm bloody here yeah 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 <laughs> so we were just all playing like on the floor in my office for for ages and then I was like oh I should probably go to bed sorry guys <laughs> It's been fun. <laughs> it's been fun, guys. I'm going to get out of here. I mean, with like five cats, though, like that is entertaining. <laughs> I also had a riveting, uh, crazy weekend night. I um, cooked a delicious dinner and wrote some of my story. And then I've been playing Baldur's Gate 3, which I know some people out there are going to be into this. I know they are. What is that? It's a video game that's basically Dungeons and Dragons. Right. Okay. The game. Such a nerd. But it's super <laughs> horny. Oh, right. Super horny. And that's why people are in. (laughs) Not the only reason, not the only reason, but it's like, it's kind of like Reddit. You just can't stop. Like as soon as you get into it and the story, like there's a narrator and everything takes you through. But I was like. Does it have famous people in it? Um, maybe voice actors. Yeah, right. Maybe. But they're like, the voice acting is brilliant and there's like romancing and things like that. And it's just, (laughs) there is a huge community out there and it's just like, 
it's it's nasty. Cool, <laughs> it's nasty. I'm currently um, romancing uh, the vampire, obviously. Okay, Astaroth, which everyone is like obsessed with, and he's sassy, and he's T Roth. Um, yeah, yeah, he's beautiful. He's an elf and he's a vampire. And um, elven vampire. Yeah, yeah. I haven't gotten like super far into the game because he's in the daylight as well. And I'm like, is this a D and D thing? Do I not know about this? I don't know. Uh, Daywalker. Yeah, mixed yeah. breed like blade very blade but it's like medieval as well and he talks like this like it's all very <laughs> it's just very engaging it's, See, it's, it's he's a game show host yeah yeah, yeah he is oh, i love it so we, look at us getting rowdy on saturday night <laughs> oh my god oh funny oh my god so much has been um, going on in our community, our little community sector. Dude. So nice. True crime news. Yes. I mean, what the actual, I mean, seriously, Suzanne Morphew remains found. Who saw that coming? Who saw that coming? Um, Sorry, no, keep going, keep going. You're on a roll. Gypsy Rose Blanchard granted parole. Yes. I will go into these, like, not, not today. It, it's, not today. There's too much going on. It's too early in the morning and yeah. it's, there's a lot. But the Morphew case is wild. Yes. Uh, and, uh, yeah, hoping for another arrest of hoping. the same person we arrested last time. Yeah, come on, come back around. Um, Tupac Shakur's murderer caught. So much stuff happened this week. So much happened. And wasn't it like a witness, someone who claimed to be a witness that they've actually arrested? It was like... Um, he, he was part of like the gang that was they were in uh, Las Vegas. Right. They'd gone Tupac and uh, I can't remember the uh, beg your pardon the other person um, had gone to see a Mike Tyson fight and just before then there was like a bit of a fight like rumble that happened outside of the actual fight. Yep. Um And then yeah, that so they knew where Tupac was going to be and yeah. Wow. Um, it was, yeah, just one of the people involved with that. I am not super familiar, obviously, with this story, unfortunately. You should I, look into it. I was going to say, should go I would into love that. to. Now that there is, like, a conclusion after right. 30 years, I would love to. And, like, I'm not a huge, like, I'm not massive into, like, old school rap, but I love Tupac. I think he's fantastic. Oh, dude. And the things so he good. rapped about, like, Angel. So, yeah, I would love to talk about Inglewood, that. Inglewood, up to no good. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> so, yes, yes. Um, Imagine week. going to prison and you're Tupac's killer. Yep. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Your face is going to be mush yeah. in about five minutes. Yeah, he's not going to be there for long. He's going to have to be kept away from people. Oh, absolutely. He's 60 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, of course, it's been... A while. Yeah, yeah. So it would have been 30 at the time. So, yeah. Yep. So. <laughs> wow. It'd be interesting. And I, I I, need, again, I don't know where he was arrested and where he's going to go to prison, but, like, I think anywhere in America and your two bucks killer. It's not good. It ain't good. Unless they send him east side. Wow. I mean, he's got a bit of a fighting chance if he goes east side. Yeah, possibly. But he can't go east side because it's flooded at the moment. <laughs> oh, my God. It's crazy, <laughs> isn't it? 
What is happening? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Um, we will keep you up to date on our socials. And we'd like to do just like a really quick shout out. Thank you to everyone who has been following us on Instagram. We reached 700 followers. Mm. I was so happy. So thank you so much. It and may not seem a lot to anyone else but it's a lot to us it is a lot to us and it means a lot (laughs) and all your feedback has been so appreciative um like (laughs) uh beautiful uh what have we got we've got uh, um this is brilliant by uma ruby taro on our uh caitly and tilly (laughs) video that we did which was awesome yep um cammy uh 181 which i believe is our beautiful librarian who uh said history 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 buff. buff She um she approved my um my soldiers of 1916, which was good. So great, ep ladies. This history correcting overlord approves. <laughs> Joe was like, yes, glory. Um, she also said on the Kate Lee and Tilly Divine, uh, great ep guys. I think there was a healthy respect between these two, even at the height of their dealings. And I am checking your car before I get in it now, Gemma. Uh, I think that was a reference to your huntsman. <laughs> oh, on that yes oh god yes i'm not even joking in the past week three no three no the last one though i don't know if it was a huntsman it was more like kind of like a wolf spider or something like that but we had two huntsmen's there was the one that i sent you the photo of yes and then there was another one that was like twice the size no again ginger (laughs) ginger but the last one that I, I saw, it was like a really dark color. So that's why I thought it wasn't a huntsman. It was mm. like kind of a little bit, it looked a little bit more like um, Lucas the spider. <laughs> Lucas, Lucas the spider. Yes. Oh. So, yeah, I was just like, Louis. And he, he just got right on that. Like yeah. in the car again? Or no, just in no, the no. I thank the upper powers. <laughs> um, thank nature. Thank the goddess. <laughs> Uh, no, I haven't had one in the car lately, but I did accidentally (laughs) leave my car door open, uh, for a few hours the other day. And and our driveway has like two big apple blossom trees, like on either side. (laughs) And my car was full of blossoms. I mean, uh, between spiders and blossoms, blossoms, damnation. (laughs) (laughs) Moving the door in, blurries out like a Disney movie. Super annoying. Oh my god, that's so good. Um, <laughs> awesome. What is your fact this week? Okay. Facts from the freezer. Facts from the freezer. Do you know that in Koh Samui in, Th- in Thailand, and many Australians will know this, but maybe our international listeners won't know this, there is a, a mummified monk on display in a glass cabinet on the island of Koh Samui in Thailand. Whoa. Right. Um, I've actually been there. I've seen it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Luang Po Deng was a native of Koh Samui who began to study Buddhism at the age of 50. He became a monk and was well known for his meditation techniques and had a level of insight such that he could predict his own death. Oh. Uh, before he died in 1973... Uh, there are sort of two sides, sort of two versions of this story. He either instructed others to style him into a meditative pose as a symbol of the transience of life, while other sources say that he actually died while meditating and he's just been kept in that same position ever since. Um, his disi- disciples decided to enshrine him within a glass case 
uh, and it's it's at the temple. Um, and even though the climate can be hot and humid over there, his body is still relatively well preserved. Wow. I'll get you a photo of it, actually. Yeah, please. Um, oh, you know what? Maybe I, um, I'll get one of my own photos. <gasps> yeah. He's got sunglasses on. <laughs> um, he's got, like, Ray-Bans. It's too cool. Because I think, um, like, his eyes have gone. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, and if he... Oh, if he was meditating when he's... Oh, I suppose it doesn't matter if your eyes are closed. If your eyes go, it's probably going to sink in, aren't they? Yeah, it's probably going to look a little bit weird. Probably didn't get those, like, those um, handy eye caps that we use for our embalmed. So this is this is what his shrine looks like. Oh, wow. Oh. And so can you see him there? <laughs> the sun Wow. See how well preserved he is? He really is, isn't he? And then I went to the side and I sort of, that's what he looks like from the side. Wait, remind me how long ago he died? 1973. Wow, he is well preserved. He, yeah. Um, did they put him in glass like straight away? Um, I don't know. I'm going to go ahead and presume it was pretty pretty soon after. Yeah, because that's well preserved. I mean, you know, Thailand, it can be humid there. Like, it, it, yeah. it's, it's strange to me. So I guess something about the heat has sort of desiccated his skin. Yes. And it's, it's, it's mummified. It's literally mummified. It'd be cool if he died while he was meditating. Like, what a great way to go. Yeah. Just like, mm, goodbye. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going now. See you later. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. I love that you've been there. Oh, so cool. Yeah, and I had heard about it. I knew that he was in Thailand because my friend Dave had seen it. And then I um, had said, oh, we're going to Koh Samui. And he goes, oh, yeah, the mummified monkeys there. I was like, are you kidding me? Amazing. So because Koh Samui is a pretty small island, like you can you can do a tour you know, just a couple of hours. Yeah. yeah. So like that um, dark tourism thing. Like you've got to see this if you go. But it's almost like it wasn't even just like weirdos. It was just everywhere. Everyone just goes there. It's yeah. just kind of part of the tourism there. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's what they do. Yeah. I love that. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So <laughs> uh, I let this last night and I thought it was so funny. Um, and I kind of want to get into it one day because I don't know the full story. And I don't know if we could even get through the whole story. But Genghis Khan, we know Genghis Khan. Uh, Genghis Khan would marry off a daughter to the king of an allied nation. Uh, he would then assign his new son-in-law to military duty in the Mongol Wars. Did he have lots of kids? I think he did, had, Like, did he do this, like, on the regular? Oh, yeah, lots of kids. Did he have a lot of wives? I assume lots of wives. Lots of kids. Lots of kids. Yeah, and right. Just, like, there's that... Uh, I can't remember it's the like statistic. like a game of chess. Yes. <laughs> there's a, a huge statistic of Fly. people. <laughs> <laughs> there's a massive amount of people who have Genghis Khan's DNA... I've heard that. Yeah. Wow. Huge, like nations of people because of just how many people, how many daughters and sons he had. Yeah. Well, it worked out for him because, yeah, his new son-in-laws would be uh, assigned to military duty in the Mongol Wars while his daughters took over the rule. Most sons-in-laws died in combat, giving his daughters complete control of these nations. Wow. Nations. Nations. Complete control of these nations. There right. you go. I, it's genius. <laughs> like, 
So was he like, you know, you're you're my child, therefore you can rule regardless of your gender? Yeah, sounds like. Wow. Or just like being able to get his kin in there by marrying off the daughters because obviously that's what happened at the time and then go, oh, new son-in-law, you're so great, you're so powerful and you're great at military. You can go to fight for the war. Go fight for our war. And then he'd die and then he's like, Get in We're the in. Daughter. Yeah, yeah. We're in. <laughs> I just thought that was brilliant. Like, what insane tactics to you? <laughs> it's interesting because um, uh, researching bubonic plague at the moment and oh, the, the yes. Mon- Mongolians are, are kind of a really big part of that. Oh, so awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they oh. – it's, it's one part of history I haven't really explored a lot of, and it is such a massive part of history. I know. That's why it's really stressing me out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. I, I, can, uh, I feel you. I feel you. Before we get into the story this week, mm-hmm. uh, we have a quick word about a very exciting event that's happening in Melbourne very soon. Well, let's have a listen. <sighs> is it spooky season already? What's wrong, Lana? Gemma, I love talking about and listening to all these creepy stories, but I just wish I could watch them and be fully immersed with all the weirdos who love international horror stories. Girl, you can. Haven't you heard of MonsterFest? What? No, I'm new here. MonsterFest is an 11-day film festival at Cinema Nova here in Melbourne. Wait, so I can see all the newest horror films like Trim Season and The Last Video Store that I've been eyeing off with fellow fans like me? Yep. And you can even see Headcount and Time Addicts with a Q&A with the Australian creators. Oh my God. Wait, it says on the website I can get a five film pass for just $85. What else can I expect from MonsterFest? You'll want to be seen at the epic opening night for When Evil Lurks on October 12th. There's short film screenings, ode to the Halloween classics, and an epic closing night showing of the Emu Wars based on the real bloody Australian War of 1932. Okay, you've totally convinced me. Should I just get VIP passes for us both at monsterfest.com.au? Hell yes! Make sure you follow them on social media at monsterfestau for any updates too. What a bloody great idea. Monsterfest, 12th to the 22nd of October, 2023 at Cinema Nova. And we're back. After these messages. After these messages. This week, Mm -hmm. we are talking about something very exciting and I've had so much fun researching it. Okay. We're going to have a talk about the Great Emu War of 1932. I have no idea what this is. I'm so excited. <laughs> I know Chris knows. Chris spoke about it on your podcast or your show rather recently. Oh, yeah? So this, is, uh, this is really exciting. I'm very excited. Now, I will be, do like a slight trigger warning at the start. The setup is quite serious and there is a small mention of suicide. Okay. Uh, very, very small, but it is um, for such a weird story. It has quite a serious setup. So I just wanted to preface uh, quickly so no one gets uh, caught off guard. Okay. So my sources this week are Puppet History from Watcher. Sweet. The ABC, Wikipedia, the Sydney Morning Herald, 
Nomad's World, Trove.com, The Collector and History Skill. You know in the Sydney Morning Herald, every time I see, because it's like smh.com.au, mm-hmm. I always read it as shaking my head. <laughs> shaking my damn like, head. Oh. You know when people in the comments section, they're like, oh, SMH. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sometimes when you read Sydney Morning Herald, you're like, ah, shaking my damn head. <laughs> okay. At 11am on the 11th of November 1918, on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, gunfire across Europe fell silent, indicating the end of the Great War, or as we know it now, World War One. Lest we forget. Lest we forget. According to the Australian War Memorial site, over 60,000 Australian soldiers were killed. And for the 264,000 soldiers returning home down under and looking forward to resuming their lives, they learnt the unfortunate fact that all nations who sent their sons to war learnt that life back home had to go on. Mm. Tough, tough times. Very tough. Despite fighting for four years when soldiers returned, many not only were traumatised and now had disabilities for life, they had no job and no home to return to. That's the tragedy, isn't it? It really is. Um, You know, just not looking after soldiers when they've been through all that and giving them, you know, and just... These just leaving them to it. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, the Great War is over. It's fine. We can just resume our lives now. Yeah. No, no. There's there's thousands, literally 264,000 people coming back to a country. I mean, they would have been just mentally, emotionally destroyed. Physically destroyed, but mentally and emotionally. Exactly. And like, especially then, it still happens now, but men are just so expected to carry on. Mm. And it's like, no. No, they went through one of, if not one of the most horrific events ever. And like just looking at footage of war, I just get so like, I can't imagine hearing that for four years straight Mm. and expected to just come back and be like, look at COVID. Look at all of us. Three years later, we're still like, and mm, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And we weren't even at the storm. No, we weren't in a trench, you know, things like that. So, mm. Speaking of, the Australian government suddenly had a huge influx of citizens and nowhere to put them. What was Australia to do with these returning discharged veterans? Surely. What do you mean? Like, they just didn't, because they'd been gone for so long and they come back and they needed. Well, they needed jobs. Jobs. And, and jobs had to be filled. And yeah, I, I reckon, like, yes, people would have many families to come home to. But some didn't. And I presume some wouldn't life had to carry on. And if the families and <coughs> people moved on or different maybe jobs, wives moved on. Yeah. I reckon so. A lot of people would have done that. And if you came home and you had no family, you had no life to come back to, what are you meant to do? Mm. Especially with so many soldiers having disabilities, like let alone ailments and things like that. Like, And back then, you know, we didn't have a great deal of technology. So a lot of jobs would have been at manual jobs, you know, carpentry or engineering or whatever. You would have been relying Mm -hmm. on strength, Strength. physical strength and ability. Yeah. Customer service, they, they couldn't, you know, facing people the way that you would have to, especially if they had scars and things like that. They weren't being hired anyway. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I'll tell you what they did actually. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Instead of 
<laughs> the normal jobs, um, which would have been taken by citizens anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, surely after having lost so many already, they would have been w- welcomed back to t- as heroes, you reckon, uh, and had plans in place to help ease them back into society. Surely once the Australian public had learned of the horrors of Gallipoli, the government would adhere to the demand from the public to help them. Yeah, it kind of reminds me how we had that massive fire in 2019 Mm. and the New South Wales government is only starting preventative burn-off measures now Mm -hmm. at the beginning of summer. At at the beginning of, was it El El Nino, which is the dry summer? We lost a billion native animals and we're like, "Mm, I'm sure the government will stop that from ever happening again. Sorry, getting on my high horse, but I am annoyed. (laughs) The start of this, I was like furiously typing like god damn it they could have fixed this like they could have done government (laughs) the australian government devised a scheme that would not only help our returning soldiers but settle the land of western australia feed the country and increase the agricultural output State governments provided loans to those who had been demobilised by war. So this was not only soldiers, but nurses, doctors, soldiers, uh, sorry, sailors as well. Yeah. Um, So this was freely given to women at the time as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So nurses and things like that. Uh, I say freely. The scheme was available to them, um, but they had an even lesser chance of success. I wonder if, like, you know, a lot of, like, soldiers, sailors, whatever, nurses and stuff like that, you know, we we have our people in the army reserves now and that's a job. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they had army reserves back then as well. Like, you know, you can just come back and your job is you're a soldier. There's not a war right now, but, But. you know, there's always going to be, you know, uh, maybe there's a humanitarian crisis in New Zealand or maybe there's a volcano in Bali or whatever and we need to send troops or, you know, whatever. Mm. They would have had some kind of army reserves. That's a really great question and um, I should know the answer to that. I mean, every country should have an army just in case. Well, I think, like, after the devastation of the World War, the first time we'd ever seen that, I don't think there would have been much of organization yeah. at all afterwards yeah. but um it's a great question i'll see if i can find out the answer about that because i actually don't know when the reserves came in because mm. um you're right it is really handy and the reserves do so much work for the army outside of war yeah yeah oh. uh, the government would sell or lease crown land to them for a number of rural farming activities including wool dairy cattle pigs fruit fodder and grain uh burying them and their families in debt what is fodder? Like hay? Like is it like rubbish? Like tips? Maybe food for oh yes, food like for animals. Bantha fodder yeah. in Star Wars. Uh, right. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> we should know that. <laughs> <laughs> Today we are focusing on a section of WA that came to be known as the Wheat Belt. Partially surrounding the Perth metropolitan area, altogether it covered up to 154,862 square kilometres. Is it sad that I immediately put that on the Westerosi map and that's the reach, (laughs) which is in the same place as in Western Australia and that's where their grain comes? I actually know more about Westeros than my own country. (laughs) Game of Thrones. (laughs) Look, if it works, if that's what helps visualise it, I'm sure it's going to help someone else too. I love that. 
So many thousands took up the challenge of becoming farmers, being given a mere 10 acres each on rough soil with little to no farming knowledge. So these are soldiers that have just come back from a massive war and they're like, yeah, I'll I'll try something to make ends meet. Like, yeah, yeah. And uh, here, have some land. Um, We will not be supplying you with anything else, though. There you go. So they had to learn and understand and farm straight away with, Having no idea how to do it. Some men would throw themselves into that, though. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. They... Not all, but I, I feel like a, a few would. Yeah. I mean, something to do. Like, let's learn a thing. I'm yeah. getting some energy out. I feel like the community, would hopefully, would have been, like, really good for them. Like, if they're all in kind of the same area, trying to do the same things, trying to help themselves and their families out, like, I hope that they, like, at the end of the day, went to the pub and, like, oh, I learned how to do this today. And I learned how to – let's share right. this. Like, yeah. That. I mean, tough life. It is a tough – I mean, hard life, especially Absolutely. back in those days. But I feel like a lot of men, there is – family annihilators let's take that for an example yeah yeah if they can't provide for their family uh a family annihilator will kill mm-hmm. their family mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yeah not not all men um, <laughs> but you but know that, that was you know an example that came to my mind yeah was that you know a a a, a man might feel you know much more useful if they're um they're they're growing something. They're 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 operating a farm, providing yeah, providing that pressure, that yes. pressure coming back, and it's then important. having pressure to provide, even though their families were living without them and would have been able to take over. And th- no, yeah, this is um this is history, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The vermin-ridden lands was never going to be enough to be able to start a stable farmlands, let alone enough to provide profits to dig them out of the debt. But nevertheless, around 5,000 veterans settled across Western Australia in the most suitable areas to grow the produce and make a new life for themselves. For some new farmers, they found triumph in these harsh lands and for others, critical failure. Finding themselves unable to cope with the unpredictable climates of the frost in the winters and the grueling hot summers. Mm. Lacking the capital to increase their stocks, many simply walked off the land, returning to larger cities to find work they could manage with their ailments. Right, okay. Yeah. So a lot of people tried, a lot of people failed. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people just went, no, can't do this. I wonder if mining was a thing at that time. Well, yeah, if they're just settling Western Australia, I wonder if they were like digging up and going, hey, there's some good stuff in here and led on to mining and things like that. But I imagine so, like surely. I presume it would have been a thing. Yeah. While a difficult lifestyle, it wasn't impossible to have a few great years of stable harvest and enough to provide livable conditions to get the ball rolling for our soldiers turned farmers. Fencing provided protection from rabbits, which was the biggest vermin issue at the time. Mm. And as the world enjoyed post-war optimism and rapid growth, the Australian government would call it a great success. Starting in September of 1929, the world saw the epic Wall Street crash in America, causing a massive ripple effect worldwide. This led to many years of suffering and poverty. Low profits, companies closing, plunging incomes and prices dropping on produce, it was an overall loss of opportunity for economic growth across the world, with Australia being hit particularly hard. 
It was what we now know as the Great Depression. Or the beginning of, rather. But Kate and Tilly were all right. This is so funny, right? I was writing this story <laughs> thinking about across Australia, there were some, like, badass women, like, making mad profit. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. How different across the country it was. <laughs> Australia was a primary agricultural producer within the British Empire, in particular produce such as wool and wheat, mm-hmm. and suffered significantly from the collapse in international demand. An already collapsing wheat price was suddenly halved. Unemployment rose to 32%. Alcoholism and suicide skyrocketed under these miserable... Wow, really? 32% employment and unemployment, wow. Yeah. Alcohol and suicide skyrocketed under these miserable conditions, but still production had to go on. Yeah, 32%. It's uh, bad. Yeah, that's high. Mm. Uh, Farmers were being pressured to increase wheat production with the government promising to provide subsidies to encourage them. By October 1932, farmers were preparing the new harvest and with no sign of the promised assistance from the state, they refused to deliver said produce if the government did not uphold the guaranteed price of wheat to pay the farmers. So the government said, all right, we're going to pay you this amount for your wheat guaranteed Mm. absolutely like don't even worry about what's happening outside we're going to pay you this much but the government didn't have money either okay because of the world (laughs) right (laughs) so (laughs) they didn't have anything to promise them but they were like no 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 we'll do this for you you just got to deliver it yeah and the farmers were like well no we're not delivering until we see that money it was a standoff Right. So, uh, are, are the government doing that? Um, and and, and uh, what's her name from New York? That that chick that. Oh, the- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> what's her Anna Sorokin? Anna Sorokin. Pulling in so, Anna Sorokin. So, are they like. <laughs> Hey, government, you said you were going to pay me this much money. And they're like, oh, we already organized the transfer. Run it again. <laughs> Run it again. I, I totally did it. Don't even worry about it. Just deliver. The money the comes clothes. through. I won't be able to start my foundation. <laughs> <laughs> but that was not their only troubles. During this time, it was also marked as migration season for emus. They migrated from the coast to the inland regions during this time. So October. Okay, uh, so have, when it gets hotter, they go to the desert? Well, when breeding season and hatching is done, they go inland. Random. Weird. I did, like, a little too much research about emus. And, again, conflicting information. But what I understand is that they're around the coast. They have all the breeding. They get, like, the incubate eggs to all do all that. And then all of them move inland to find somewhere nice to make a home you can imagine moving across the land to find new fresh water supplies wheat crops and livestock aplenty the emus found the cultivated lands a great place for them to settle into and feed thousands of hungry beaked mouths little chicks little chicks so cute emus what are they and why did we go to war with them (laughs) So this is more for our um, international listeners in case you're like, I've heard of emus. 
I kind of know the general shape of them, but they're pretty devastating birds, I found out. (laughs) Emus are a native bird to Australia, the second tallest living bird in the world, only second to ostrich. Mm. The flightless birds have long necks and legs with large three-toed claws, wide bodies that are mostly made up of soft, shaggy brown feathers. They can reach up to 1.9 metres or 6.3 feet tall. They are quite scary. The, yeah. I find them scary. They're very like, intimidating. Yeah. Intimidating is the word. They can also sprint up to 50 kilometres an hour or th- <laughs> And they look stupid doing it, but <laughs> yeah, they're fast. They do. Those little legs, like, <laughs> they're so fast. Uh, males can weigh up to 50 to 55 kilos and, and females up to 60 kilos or 120 pounds. Bitches ain't missing no meals. Nah, they're eating. They be be eating. Um, They eat a variety of plants and insects and can withstand low levels of water and food intake for weeks at a time due to having large fat stores. Right. Fun fact. uh, While females can lay up to 5 to 15 eggs multiple times during breeding season, it's the males who are the incubators and protectors of the eggs, which can take around eight weeks to hatch. Right. So once they're finished incubating and hatching, the emus are ready to migrate as a family unit. Keep in mind as well at this time, the emu was on the Australian coat of arms, which was adopted in 1912. Right. They were regarded as a protected species until 1922. There's so many of them. There's so many of them. 1922, due to ravaging the farmlands, uh, they had their protected status dropped and they were regarded as vermin and pests. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's a big roast. That's a big roast. That's a big bird. I wonder if anyone tried, surely. Oh, 100%. Come on, Blake. This is Australia. (laughs) Is it really Australia if we don't eat our national animals? We eat kangaroos. I know. That weirds me out, to be honest with you. Mm, There's a lot of kangaroos, though. I suppose so. I suppose so. I've just, like, I've never had it. Oh, have you not? No, I haven't. It's very rich. Yes, I hear that, and I see like it, it looks very red. It's very red. Not not a lot of fat in there. Did you see that video of the kangaroo this week? That was like super buff. Oh, I feel like there's always one there's coming always, out there's always super one. buff. They're so buff. There was one in particular, <laughs> but it looked like it was flexing, like someone was recording, and it was like yeah, yeah. gains. <laughs> like, too much recognition. <laughs> gains, gains, protein. <laughs> The farmers faced the arrival of 20,000 emus on their new farmlands. Jesus. The birds began consuming, trampling, and destroying crops, leaving large holes in their fences for the rabbits to join in the party and cause devastation in their wake. It's like the big day out. (laughs) It's like the Burning Man of Australia. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) <laughs> the farmers went back to who put them in this position in the first place, the government, expressing their anger and concern about the birds infiltrating their crops. A group of ex-soldiers turned farmers went to meet with the Minister of Defence, Sir George Pierce. So can they just jump over the rabbit-proof fence? Well, yes. Yes, they can jump over And the chicks it. can just kind of go through. Yeah, I reckon with those big claws, they were like, clawing over these fences and just ripping them to shreds. Either that or just 
High jumping them. Yeah, yeah. High jumping it and then like tearing it out for the little chickies to come through. Okay. They are pretty cute. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They are pretty cute. Thank you. Have you seen that video of the little emu? And um, someone's done a voiceover. He's running around the house and someone's done a voiceover. He's yes. like, I'm a baby emu. Get out of my way. I'm going to roll over and I'm going to beat you up. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send it to you. It's funny. Yes, please. Oh, my God. That's, I imagine that's what they sound like. <laughs> <laughs> Being aware of the devastation machine guns could cause, the farmers pleaded to the minister to allow them the use of machine guns to control the emu infestation. Oh, my God. Yeah. Just, just can we have some machine guns real cool? Uh <laughs> Pierce and the state government agreed, but under the attached conditions. The guns were to be used by military personnel, even though they were literally ex-soldiers. But, uh, okay. Like, but the farmers... Are, are soldiers. Know what they're doing. Yep. Yeah, so absolutely. we're like, yeah, you can do it, but we're going to send our guys. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And the WA government would provide transportation for these said troops. So they're bringing guys in, even though literally sold. I don't know. I don't know. Are they the buff kangaroos? <laughs> <laughs> they come in with their little hat, their little hat, and they're like, right. That would have been cool. I want to see an emu kangaroo fight. That would be right. No, that's bad. Um, <clears throat> Uh, so the government would bring in the troops, but the farmers had to provide accommodation, food, and pay for the ammunition used for these guns. Okay. So you can have them, but you're going to pay for everything. Oof. This operation had one obvious objective, but it was also seen as a great target practice for the new troops coming in. And it was also viewed as a way to rally the Australian people in patriotism during the succession movement that was also brewing at the time. Oh, this is so weird. I know, there was so much going on. A referendum was soon to take place in WA to ask the question, should the state of Western Australia leave the Australian Federation after such dissatisfaction from the Australian people. How would the government get this completely generous act known to the Aussie people? With a film crew, of course. Okay. Of course. <laughs> a bit of propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> Who wouldn't love a bloodbath war film to get in the good graces of the Australian people again? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining it. I know. That long ago, <laughs> did it have an awesome newsread of voiceover coming to you live from WA? Emus ravage the lands, like yeah, it was because they after have... a long day of battling emus, <laughs> yeah. they can't go to the pub because the pubs are now shut at six pm, <laughs> which is when they get off work. Yes, have a nice cold glass of Coca Cola, Coca Cola, <laughs> and forty cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> That was just normal, wasn't it? Um, the onslaught was delayed due to a period of rainfall that caused the emus to spread even further across the countryside. Mm -hmm. But on November 1st, Sergeant S. McMurray, Major GPW Meredith and Gunner J. O'Halloran led troops with two Lewis machine guns, 10,000 rounds of ammunition and a cinematographer from Fox Movie Tones to document the war to come. Oh, wow. Yep. So they used to show newsreels at the cinema. At the cinema, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that was the aim, was to record it, send it back, show the Australian people, look how good we're doing. We're taking care of our farmers. 
and everyone else internationally is like, what What's is going, going on? on? Yeah. <laughs> What's happening down in Australia? Note to self, yeah. don't go overseas yeah, exactly. to Australia. <laughs> the Emu Wars, first attempt. <laughs> On November 2nd, the men travelled to Camp EWA on the Red Dirt landscape about halfway between Perth and Kalgoorlie to assist the farmers. And according to newspaper accounts at the time, it was to collect 100 emu skins to make feathered hats for the light horsemen. The game was afoot. Mmm, feathered hats. Feathered hats. Okay. So plumes of... Emu feathers at the top of our hats. Very patriotic. Very okay. Patriotic. 50 emus were sighted half a kilometre away. They were just out of range for these guns. So the farmers made an attempt to herd the emus back into range. But these clever birds separated into smaller groups and ran, making it too difficult for the gunners to follow. They would have cattle dogs, right? Maybe not, because they wouldn't be able to afford it. Really? Unless there was just dogs around, Yeah. Huh. I thought most farms have just always had dogs. Yeah, sure. I'm sorry. It was just... Well, yeah, maybe because they're new farmers, maybe they just don't really... I maybe don't know. Don't like know. Maybe the cattle wasn't near the wheat because you don't want the cows munching. Well, I guess because they're not so much cattle farmers. They're wheat farmers and they're, you know, um, they're maybe, well, wheat doesn't need cattle dogs, dogs I suppose, to round it yeah. up. It's not running anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> I assume there would have been some dogs around, but whether they were trained to be cattle dogs is another question, I suppose. Yeah. But you can just imagine a lot of farmers running around, all these emus yeah. trying to be like, if ah, it's yeah. my dog would love to round up yeah, some emus, yeah. but it would be chaos. Yeah, exactly. They would just, you know, there'd be emus everywhere. Well, even if you got the birds all like surrounded by the dogs, as soon as that gun started, they were running. Mm. They didn't care. And I don't think an, a dog's really going to stop an emu unless they do. But a good cattle dog will get them all in the same place though. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So as soon as the gun fired, those birds were running yeah. in all directions. Yeah. In the next attempt later that day, a round of gunfire managed to kill, in quotes, a number of birds. Mm. And in another later attempt in the day, they managed to, quote, kill perhaps a dozen of the emus. Seems the military personnel underestimated our crafty, long-legged national animal. But mm-hmm. nevertheless, the emu war had begun. <laughs> After re-evaluating their enemies, the soldiers made a second attempt on November 4th, finding themselves in the perfect conditions they had waited for. A hundred yards out from a flock of 1,000 emus gathered around a dam. The soldiers readied themselves with the guns locked and loaded, positioned themselves and felt pretty good about their odds having seen the birds in action now. This time they waited until the emus came closer into range before opening fire. And once the spray of bullets begun, 10, 11, 12 emus shot dead. And then O'Halloran's gun jammed. Okay. And the remaining birds managed to run off before the guns could be fixed. The emus escaped again. No more shot that day. It's just like... It's a bit shit. It's a bit shit. And they must have been gone back to the pub at the end of the day like... A farce. A farce. farce. That's right. Bloody hell. A lot of that. A lot of that. It was difficult to assess the emu losses as they proved to be more difficult than originally thought. 
As one newspaper reported, quote, the toughness of their feather hides made them immune to glancing volleys of machine gun bullets. So the thick layers of feathers weren't just good protection. They were also making the birds look bigger targets than they actually were. Right. So that, you know, when they fluff up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they've got little wings. Oh, tiny. Teeny tiny because they're not using them. So I'm guessing maybe the emu doesn't have a lot of natural predators. I mean, maybe the baby ones, like a lot of eagles would be taking them and things like that. But the big ones, I mean, it's not like we're in crocodile country. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I guess there's nothing really to keep them under control naturally. Yeah. And then like being, you know, 55 to 60 kilos, nothing's pushing them over that easy anyway. Mm. Like, yeah. And we don't have like wild cats in Australia. Well, allegedly. We didn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> Alleg- allegedly like big big cats i mean yeah um, not crocodile you know, it's country. not like we have toy boars lions or, or boars or well would a boar take down boars? an emu no nah. maybe <laughs> i don't know maybe a big one got under its legs tripped it up but even then like, there's not enough predators they move fast yeah they move so fast i've seen an emu run as most australians have and um god damn mm. god damn mm-hmm. they're fast faster than a huntsman <laughs> <laughs> you may also remember as well from their description having the uh, excess fat stores protected their vital organs so emus bleed slowly meaning the birds oh. could be shot several times and keep running with very little difficulty wow yeah yeah major meredith found the emus almost impossible to defeat he was quoted saying... It's an emu. It's an <laughs> emu. Yep. Yep. He was quoted saying, if we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. I feel like... Why don't you just farm them? I mean, obviously, it's, yeah. you know, it, they're a great source of protein. They're actually quite tasty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what you just round them up. Just, you don't have to shoot them straight away. Just round them up and just put them on a massive farm. Mm-hmm. One of these guys can just be an emu farmer. Yeah. Oh, see, that would have been great. I think the also issue at the time is, like, if they'd only faced rabbits as their vermin, they didn't have giant fences and they probably thought like killing them was quicker and easier than building massive fences to keep them in yeah because as soon as you start to round them up you have to keep them there that's the issue well that's true yeah if they're that fast i'm sure like they probably went through this they were like what else can we do (laughs) oh Mm. my god like this is getting way much like more difficult than we imagined Papers at the time also quoted another emu as emu hunter rather as saying, "There's only one way to kill an emu: shoot it through the back of the head when its mouth is closed, or through the front of the mouth when the mouth is open. That's how hard it is." Wait, what? Does that mean it can go straight through and it's still living? What the hell? What the fuck. <laughs> or when its mouth is open, shoot it in the mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Which um, Puppet History points out is very funny. Um, that's actually two ways to kill an emu. <laughs> yeah, 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 true. <laughs> Straya. Straya. Oh, he's stressed. This man is stressed. We understand. <laughs> In the days to follow the disappointing beginnings, Meredith chose to move further south, where the birds were reported as being fairly tame. 
By the fourth day, the emus had created their own tactics. Army men noted that, quote, each pack seemed to have its own leader now. Ah, Mm. the zombies are learning. Yes, they're learning. The media was no help to our bird fighting army either. Quoting one of the recruits as saying, the emus have proved that they are not so stupid as usually considered to be. Each mob has its leader, always an enormous black plumed bird standing fully at six feet high who keeps watch while his fellows busy themselves with the wheat. <laughs> at the first sign of uh, at the first suspicious sign, he gives signal and dozens of heads stretch up from out the crops. A few of the birds will take fright, starting a headlong stampede for the shrub. The leader always remains until his followers had reached safety. Like, somehow he'd be like, to the trees, go, go, go. And he'd just be like, well, there's one bird waiting, just looking at them like, yeah, we got you bastards. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Meredith needed a new approach. So they mounted a machine gun on the back of a truck. So Gunnar O'Halloran could fire at the speedy enemies while they gave chase. Which is how Mad Max actually became the yes. inspiration for the film. That's right. <laughs> I just had the music come into my head. <laughs> like you can imagine I'm chasing after the emus with this truck. A smart, if not inefficient idea due to the ground being so rough, O'Halloran spent the whole chase holding on to dear life without being able to fire a single shot. Idiot. (laughs) Things were looking grim to say the least. (laughs) Hang on, so he didn't strap himself in? No, he just held on. You could have just put a really nice comfy chair. You could have put an armchair in the back of the truck and then just strapped it down. Strap yourself in, strap your arms like on it and just pull the trigger and move. Like, come on. Yeah, comfort and mortality. And style. (laughs) Yeah, mortality, that's right. When one New South Wales state Labor politician inquired whether a medal was to be struck for those taking part in this war... His federal counterpart in WA responded that they should rightly go to the emus who have, quote, won every round so far. So they were just (laughs) having a laugh. They thought it was hilarious. Give the birds a medal. Go on. These poor guys. These poor farmers. Six days after the first encounter, 2,500 rounds of ammunition had been fired. Some estimated a mere 50 emus had been killed, while others swore it was anywhere between 200 and 500. Possibly wishful thinking? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. It was totally more than that, more than that. (laughs) Members in the Australian House of Representatives discussed the operation following the negative response from the media and the public. News reports were claiming that only, quote, a few emus had died. This was exacerbated by the footage newsreels shown in the theatres of the emus expertly avoiding fire and frankly making a right tit out of these servicemen. <laughs> so they actually took the footage and, and, and they didn't Not, make it look good for the people or anything like that. And was this shown in America? Well, it, it, the tale did spread worldwide. So I think eventually, but it was mostly just in Australia. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> After that, uh, Sir George Pierce withdrew the military personnel and guns on November 8th. 
So the tale of the emu wars spread worldwide, even right. reaching back to the motherland in England. And this probably started like, you know, you know how on the news, like Seven News, we'll have at the end of the, the news, it'll be like a dog on a surfboard. Ah, that you know, what a great way to end the day. You know, they can in England, that's today dumb stuff from Australia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It is, isn't it? It's like overseas. These guys are racing on eskies with wheels. Yeah, and- yeah, that's it. I found some of the news, the actual newspaper clippings as well, and they're only like really short paragraphs. But it was like the emu wars, like in big bold across the today top. in the emu wars. Yeah, yeah, and keeping people updated. Keep, the emu wars podcast. Yeah. Everything keeping you up to date yeah. today. November 8th, uh, Sir George Pierce withdraws uh, military personnel. What? <laughs> Can't wait to see how this turns out. Like. <laughs> <laughs> These poor guys. Oh. So, conservationists protested the cult, describing the war as extermination of the rare emu. Mm, and it was not that rare. Not that rare. It was an attempt of mass destruction of the birds. But the general public found the whole thing rather comical. <laughs> Yeah, I bet. Like, think about post-war, you know, optimism. Ah, oh, the world's great. And what's Australia doing? Oh, <laughs> they're silly birds. <laughs> they're chasing birds. Silly Australians. <laughs> after, with, after the withdrawal, Major Meredith's official report noted that his men had suffered no casualties. <laughs> good. Good, good. I mean, it'd be... Embarrassing if they did. Uh, (laughs) The emus continued to devastate the wheat fields and the farmers once again pleaded for assistance. And to the embarrassment of these men, the Western Australia Premier James uh, Mitchell sent Major Meredith back into the field with inexperienced machine gunners to make a second attempt. Inexperienced ones now. Yeah, so I think more came in and Meredith noted somewhere um, that... These were not men who had been in war. So this was not guys knowing how to move these guns and how to, especially with how fast the the birds are going. Why don't they just get the soldiers? They're like, you know, we know how to build a trench. You know, let's just, we'll sort this out. We can get this done in like a week. Yeah, exactly. Well, on the second attempt, uh, on November 13th in 1932, the military found a degree of success over the first two days with approximately killing 40 emus. Yeah, but how many rounds? Like, exactly. 150,000 rounds. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you're yeah. you're bound to hit something when you shoot that many bullets. Yeah, I bet if you went out to Campy WA and just, like, sifted the ground, you'd find yeah, 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 yeah. forever. <laughs> By December, the soldiers were killing approximately 100 emus per week. Okay. The military was recalled on the 10th of December and in Meredith's second report, he claimed 986 kills with 9,860 rounds shot. How many kills? Uh, 986. So it's like, I was going to say 1,000 per bird, but like, you know, it was 10, 10 rounds per bird. There you go. How long has this been going on now? So what, started in October and they're getting out on the 10th of December. So, you know, close to two months. Like another thousand chicks have been born. Yes. They were like, we'll grow stronger. Uh, Every bird you take will double it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Over the whole operation, Meredith claimed 2,500 wounded birds had died at the result of the injuries that they had sustained, bringing to end the Great Emu War. So it was mainly those first six days, but there was that second attempt that they had to go back in. So what did they just do? Just go, we're just going to have to build bigger fences. Well, that and the um, the poor farmers did come back and say, hey, we need help again yeah. in 1934, 1943 and 1948. Instead of sending the gunners back in each time, though, the government supplied the farmers with guns and ammunition to make more emu culls themselves, which proved much more effective with a bounty system being put in place. Right. 57,034 bounties were claimed over a six-month period in 1934. Wow. Yep. So getting it done. Getting it done. So it was much more efficient for like one or two guys to go out. Yeah. Who know what they're doing. Exactly. Not with a film crew. Yeah. There are lots of people to scare them off. I wonder why. But yeah. I think farming would have Just been Just need one fun. good shooter yep. in some good Quiet. camo. Quiet. Yeah. Get out there about five in the morning yeah. and wait. Yeah. And then, yeah, there's um, – actually, I'll show you right now. There was that photo of that farmer. Yeah. Yeah. Holding up an emu by its neck. Like, yeah. Yeah. After World War II, more than 284,000 emus were killed between 1945 and 1960. It was such a common occurrence eventually that there are official archives of two wheat belt farmers trying to pay their taxes in dead emus. Wow. Mm -hmm. Did it work? I don't know, actually. <laughs> that was on the ABC. This uh, librarian looked up the results, but I'm like, I wonder if it did work. Yeah. <laughs> Despite no emus being present to sign the documents, a truce was declared in 1999 when emus were declared a protected, protected species once again. Wow. So now you can't shoot emus yeah. in, just in Western Australia or everywhere? I think it's everywhere again. Huh. Yeah. So... Behind the event of what could be described as a Looney Tunes episode, yes. we are reminded of the suffering of many thousands of farmers and loss of so many birds. So, this November 11th, take a moment to remember not only the soldiers, sailors, doctors and nurses of the Great War, but also the fallout and the wars closer to home. Mm. And this brings to the end the epic tale of the Great Emu Wars. Extraordinary. Extraordinary tale of uh, Australian resilience. Australians just being Australian, isn't it? <laughs> and if you want to learn more and um, see the great emu war in action, you can go to Monster Fest mm -hmm. and see the Emu Wars film by uh, Umbrella Entertainment as the closing night film. So check out Monster Fest uh, on Instagram. They're Monster Fest AU. And uh, check out the movies that they've got coming up this uh, festival season. I think yes. it, they go from, is it the October 12th to 20th, I believe? Yeah, October 12th to 22nd. 22nd. It's being held at Cinema Nova in Melbourne. And some of the films look just awesome. Like, I've been, like, eyeing off some of the newer films anyway. And then to be able to see them all in one place. Yeah. Plus, like, they're doing homages to classics. They're doing short film festival like... Uh, days and things like that and mm. you can get a, like a five movie pass to go oh, yeah which is cool or you can do the vip and go see all of them yeah which like 
Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much for listening to my story. I, um, I love that. (laughs) Thank you so much for telling me that weird story. That really weird story. I've never heard of that. Yeah. It's like one of those things that's like, it could be an urban legend, but no, it's actually a hundred percent true. It's real. (laughs) Yeah. I had so much fun researching this. So, um, thanks. Well, until next time, everybody, you know how it goes. Yeah, tell us what you thought online. Comment. Tell us. Yep. Let us know. We're getting lots of messages, but I want to see conversations happening. Let us know. Instagram, I think my fridge is haunted. Facebook, I think my fridge is haunted. Yeah. TikTok, I think my fridge is haunted. Really? Wow. Okay. <laughs> all of them. All of them. We got all of them. Um, and until then... Be creepy, but don't be a creep. Woo! And they're all called Bruce. Of course. <laughs> Bruce O. Dono. D- d- o. <laughs> Macca. Macca. Oh, <laughs>